been several weeks now since we last looked at the Gospel of Mark. We paused for the Advent season, and so I think it was then mid-November the last time we looked at the Gospel of Mark. And so you may forget that the Gospel of Mark was written around A.D. 60, or, 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 yeah, around A.D. 60 or so, when Peter would have been in Rome in captivity, in, in, in prison, and Mark was his disciple, I guess, and Mark was writing down Peter's memories. And so this book, then, is addressing believers who are undergoing persecution, undergoing the initial stages of the Neronian persecution that really called them into question, is this worth clinging to? Is who I think Jesus is sufficient to get me to stay loyal to him over against the emperor of Rome who has a very real influence and power in the world, namely to kill me? Is Jesus worth it? And so this book lays out that argument. Jesus is worth it. And what Mark wants you to do is come to grips with who Jesus is. Not just who he is in the abstract, but who is he to you? Is he of greater consequence than the emperor of Rome? And when you hear emperor of Rome, think the one who can kill you. Now, in this passage right here, uh, we see three episodes. There are two main episodes, Jesus going to Nazareth and then him sending out his disciples on, an, on a short-term itinerant mission trip. And then in that story of the mission trip, you have a, a reflection, like a memory, a, hypothet- a parenthetical about John the Baptist. Now these three episodes, Jesus in Nazareth, the disciples going out on their trip, and John the Baptist all share a couple themes. They share the themes of faithfulness and rejection. In each case, we see rejection taking place. Jesus rejected at Nazareth, him giving instructions about what to do about rejection to his disciples. And then, of course, you see the illustrative story of John the Baptist having had his ministry rejected by Herodias specifically, who bore such a grudge against him that as soon as she had an opportunity to get him killed, she did. Faithfulness in the face of rejection. Now today we're ordaining three men to church office. Jesus Christ has appointed in the church two perpetual offices. That means until he returns, perpetual Until he returns, there will be elders and deacons. And he has given the keys of the kingdom, authority to govern and rule in the church to these two offices. And so as we lay hands on these three men today, we are in a very real sense sending them off to embark on the ministry to which God has called them. And so in a very apropos sense, I think today's passage Being faithful in the face of rejection has great application for us as a church and specifically for Gary, Les, and Jeff as they set upon their ministry. Namely, 
They're about to start doing God's work in an official capacity. And some of you may not like it when they have to tell you no. And there may be a tendency for them to face possible rejection. And unless someone's a sociopath, no one likes being rejected. It is human nature to be rejection averse. And so we posture ourselves in front of other people. We, we hedge our words. We, we couch our words in, 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 in soft garb. And we want to smooth over the rough edges of what we say. We don't like it when people reject us. And if you remember, these readers who first got this letter were being rejected in a violent way. And what we need to know is that if we are rejected, we are simply following in the footsteps of Jesus who himself was rejected. And so I think these three episodes then provide us some uh, lessons to be learned for both those who are about to embark on their ministry and for those of us as a church. So I, I want to look at each of these three episodes to get a couple uh, lessons for each of us. Um, first, the first lesson is found in verses 1 through 6. Jesus goes to Nazareth. The first lesson is don't judge faithfulness by success. Okay, Jesus goes to Nazareth, and these people have heard about him. He's gone around. He's been doing his ministry for a little while. He has name brand recognition as a sort of celebrity. And here comes the homegrown local boy. He grew up there. In fact, that proves to be the stumbling block. You've heard the phrase, familiarity breeds contempt. So they could recall when little Jesus was just a 10-year-old boy, climbing trees, picking his nose, whatever. And they knew his parents. They knew his siblings. And they just could not get around that. In fact, when it says at the end of verse 3 that they took offense at him, the Greek word would, would literally be translated, they were scandalized by it. They thought it was outrageous that someone, that this, that this little whippersnapper here was now claiming all that he was claiming and teaching all that he was teaching. Actually, kind of taking some presumptuous claims, if you think about it. I mean, to sit there and say, today this passage is fulfilled in your hearing, that's kind of outrageous. And they were outraged. And so Jesus, it says, was not able to do a great work there. I want to clear up a misconception. There are some people who think that what this passage is saying when it says he couldn't do a great work there that that somehow means that Jesus and his power were, was handcuffed by their unbelief. That he uh, 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 couldn't make it happen because their unbelief was actually like a smothering blanket over him. No, we see in other passages that Jesus works miracles in spite of people's overt unbelief. And I mean, God is sovereign. Jesus has sovereign power. What it means is that compared to everywhere else, that erupted in revival when he showed up, he had a very ineffective ministry there. 
because it says only a few were healed. Only a few would even come to him. And of course, Luke 4 spells out specifically why he wasn't able to have a big ministry there because they ran him out of town. They rejected him out of hand. That's Jesus' reception from the people who knew him best, who you think would have been the most inclined to saying, yeah, it's plausible that this guy is. I mean, I've known him his whole life. I've seen him growing up. I've seen how he's interacted. I've seen, it's plausible. The people that you would have thought would have been the most inclined to receive him are the ones who reject him the most violently. Now, there's a great many in our day who want to judge faithfulness by how well they're received or what kind of fruitfulness they have. Fruitfulness meaning number of followers they acquire. Jesus, if there ever was a mission-minded person, it was Jesus. Every word, every action that he uttered in his ministry was in fulfillment of that mission that God had given him to be the Savior of the world. Jesus came to Nazareth on mission. And Jesus preached to them faithfully. And they rejected him. So you would say Jesus' ministry was not very effective at building a church. But was Jesus faithful? Yes. So, for you officers, or soon-to-be officers, you're going to minister to and with people who know you, who you've known for a long time. And there may be a tendency for them to not want to take you seriously when you start exercising authority. Be faithful. Don't hedge your bets. Don't couch your words. Be faithful. Now, church, don't be like Nazareth. That's the application for you. You know that these men have been set apart by God and are going to be ordained for this task. Receive their leadership as God's blessing for you. Don't look at the fact that you may have grown up with them or known them since they were boys as, an, as a reason to not take them seriously. All right? Don't be like Nazareth. Simple application. But second, we learn in the second episode here that faithfulness requires reliance on God to provide. In verses 7 through 13, he tells his disciples to go out two by two, and he sends them out with, with basically nothing. And yes, it has caused some difficulty for translators and interpreters of, of what the significance of this is, because we know that later, right before Jesus gets uh, crucified in Luke 22, he kind of seems to roll this back when Jesus says, before I told you not to take a staff, but now I tell you to take a sword. And so people go, what's the point of this? Well, when you remember the context that Jesus is in the middle of, of, of laying out how we are to be faithful in the midst of rejection, he's sending them out the way in their first century Judaic context they would have expected a prophet to be. Think John the Baptist. Remember, he had nothing. I mean, he just wore a, a coat of, of, of 
hair with a belt. That was it. They kind of expected a prophet to look like a, I don't know, a vagabondish wild person. So he's sending them out in such a way that if there was ever going to be acknowledgement and recognition and acceptance, he's setting them up to look and act the part. In other words, the people who reject them are going to have no excuse. But of course, they will be rejected. And so Jesus gives them two bits of instruction. He says, when you go to a place, meaning not, not, not a house, but when you go to a town and someone invites you into their home, meaning you've been shown the hospitality, you've been granted the warm reception, stay there until you leave the place. Now, what that is referring to is he's addressing the propensity that we have to be more focused about upward mobility for ourselves in the ministry. When you go to a place, be content with the hospitality that you've been shown. Now, do you think it might have been a temptation for the disciples when they go to a town, some, some initial person welcomes them into their home, provides them the lodging, the hospitality they need to exist, but then maybe during the course of their ministry, some more socially prominent person, some more influential person might have said, hey, you can come over to my house. Do you think they might have been tempted, hey, you know, th- this person's nice and all, but that person over there is, you know, that's where the power brokers of society are. If I want to reach the, the culture, I've got to go make friends and rub shoulders with the power brokers. So I'm going to move over here. Do you think that was a temptation? Probably, possibly at least. But Jesus wants them to understand your success and your fruitfulness are not to depend upon your cleverness and your creativity. It's to depend upon your faithfulness to proclaim the message I am sending you to proclaim. There's a great tendency. There is a great tendency to think that I can repackage it, represent it in such a way that this time it'll be palpable. But really, what we do, more often than not, is we present the message in such a way that by the way we are presenting it, we're diverting people's attention from the point of the message in the first place. Or we're getting people to focus on some aspect of the message that is not the primary point. You may have heard that the medium is the message. He's wanting people to be satisfied with the hospitality you've been receiving Do your ministry faithfully. Don't be upward mobility oriented. And if they don't receive you, stop trying to think of ways to to finagle them into somehow, tricking them into believing. I remember in high school, I went to an evangelistic event where he basically tricked people into raising their hands for Jesus and he counted them as souls saved. If they won't receive you, you faithfully presented the message, then what do you do? Jesus says to shake the dust off your feet, which is a cultural sign that their blood is on their own heads. I've done my part, and you've had your response. You can't say at the last day that I failed you. It's on your head. So, elders, deacons, don't alter the message to avoid 
rejection. Be faithful. Accept the conditions you have and work within that parameters. You are called by Jesus to love this flock and not just seek out the people who you think are most influential. And people, when God sends elders and deacons among you, He wants you to receive them and understand that they are there for your blessing. And if you reject them, it's now on you. Because God did His part to send His people and they did their part to faithfully minister to you. Don't reject them. Lastly, there's no pretty way around this. We have the story of John the Baptist. Okay? This was written, again, to people who were looking at possible death because Caesar was putting pressure on them. What I'm going to say is not real cool. You may think it's offensive. But there's no sexy way around it. John the Baptist's story in there is, is a visceral reminder. Faithfulness may cost you your head. You may die. Now, I love Martin Luther's song, A Mighty Fortress, the last verse. The last verse is my favorite. And you see it, you can almost see it in this, in this passage. What does he say? Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. All right, understand this. John the Baptist had his ministry of calling people to repent, and he somehow got at the ear of the powers that be. He was able to speak truth to power in a way that most of us never will. And in my former career, I worked with people who had the opportunity to speak truth to power. And I can tell you that the tendency among frail, fallen humanity is once you reach that position to kind of dial back on the rhetoric because you don't want to lose the position once you've attained the position. Not John the Baptist. We see, you can see what he was teaching, how he called them broods of vipers. And I mean, whoa, he didn't dial back at all. But we know that he had called Antipas, Herod Antipas, on the carpet for marrying his brother's wife. He had talked her into getting a divorce and they got married, which was against the law. And she nursed a grudge. Now, I've said it before and I'll say it again. You are precious to God. As his child, you are precious. And every tear you shed every drop of blood you spill, God stores up. And the day will come when God will reap vengeance upon those who harass his people. That doesn't sound pretty, but it sounds comforting to those of us who are abused in the world. Now, in this passage, we get a glimpse of the derision that God holds towards the proud. God opposes the proud. What do, you, what do you mean, Ben? Where is it? Well, in Psalm 2-4, you learn that the Lord, the, the nations rage. The nations want to throw off the shackles of the king. 
And in Psalm 2.4, it says the Lord laughs and He holds them in derision that they would dare think that they could throw off the sovereign king. And this book was written, remember, around eighty sixty or so. And in this passage right here, Mark says in verse 14, King Herod heard of it. The problem is Herod was not a king. In fact, Matthew and Luke both record him as he actually was, a tetrarch. You see, when Herod the Great, who did have the authorized name of king, died, Herod the Great would have been his father, Caesar Augustus specifically refused to give Herod Antipas the title of king. And it galled Herod Antipas. You can read about it in Josephus. He fancied himself a king. He wanted to be a king. But he was not a king. And eventually, a few years after this, this happened, so before this was written, he petitioned king Emperor Caligula again for the title of king. And he was rewarded by being deposed and exiled and he died in obscurity in, modern, in Gaul, which would be modern-day France. He was not a king. Was Mark wrong? Did Mark not know that? No. You can almost see the, the sardonic sense of irony. This pretender, this man who fancied himself a king, this man who thought that he was all that in a bag of chips was really a nothing. Now think about that as these people are sitting there being persecuted by a Caesar who calls himself king of kings and lord of lords. The irony could not have been lost on them. This Caesar too is a nothing. The rulers of this age, the powers that be, exist for a moment and they make great presumptuous boasts, but the Lord disposes of them at will. So, don't be overly impressed by people and their presumptions to greatness because it is the Lord alone who is great. And the lesson for us is that you are going to be called to be faithful despite the fact that in the course of your ministry you are likely going to have a Herodias-type situation where someone is going to take offense to you but be personally powerless to do anything about it to you. And eventually, they're going to look for ways to harm you. And the people who know better and should protect you are going to fail you. And they're going to be able to work their way with you. And you will be tempted to be galled inside and angry. Remember, this is the way of faithfulness. And God will not forget it. It happened to John. It happened to the prophets before. It happened to Stephen. It happened to Jesus himself. And it's happened for hundreds and hundreds of years. Faithfulness may cost you. But as you learn in Revelation, to he who conquers, I will give the crown of life. Stay the course. Be faithful. Jesus was rejected. The apostles were rejected. John was rejected. Stay the course. Be faithful. And you will indeed inherit a crown that will never fade. Let's pray.
Father, we praise you that you are great and all the kings and would-be kings of this age get disposed in a moment. But your kingdom endures forever. Herod has been forgotten and John the Baptist remains an example of a godly man doing his work. We pray that you would be with us to give us the grace to be faithful even in the face of rejection. Be with these men we are about to ordain in accordance with what you have revealed to be your will. We ask that you would give them the strength to be faithful even unto the end. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.